everyone. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm with Terry Fakes this week, and we're doing almost a part two of what we started last week in First and Second Samuel. This week we are on to First and Second Kings. And even as we were prepping for this episode, of course, you can never exhaust a biblical book in 30, 40 minutes, 50 minutes sometimes for us on these podcasts, but we try to give a good introduction. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of our goals is that you would listen to the podcast and then think, I need to go read this. I got to go read that book. Or that you would feel empowered to say, man, I've always thought that passage was difficult, but I'm going to give it another shot. Right. First and second Kings is so inexhaustible that we're just going to be able to scratch the surface today. But our hope is to highlight some of the themes, some of the techniques, some of the history that makes sense and bring a lot of texture and richness into the text. Because I will say, and maybe you've had this experience as well, when you start to read First and Second Kings, especially after you've read First and Second Samuel, mm-hmm. it can get a little redundant. Mm-hmm. Okay, you one bad king, another bad king, another bad king. Especially when you get into Second Kings, you start seeing all these guys are bad. And then you have a couple of bright spots, but most of the time you're just reading about people who were pretty bad kings. Mm -hmm. And what I'll say is one of the things that's really made 1st and 2nd Kings come alive for me is either finding a commentary or a teacher that you like to listen to or a great study Bible that's able to do two things. Number one, it's able to get you a perspective of what's actually going on in the world at this time because... By the time you get to 1 Kings, and especially by the time you have the dedication of the temple, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 8, which is the high point. Right. We said the high point is David. The, the culmination of David's life is the building and dedication of the temple, which is son Solomon. And, it, and which is the culmination of Solomon's life because chapters 9 through 11 are not so favorable for Solomon. It exactly. It's the apex of his life as well. Exactly right. The... The nation of Israel is a major global player by the time you get to the dedication of the temple. One of the things that you're going to see in the life of Solomon, for example, is comparison with other kings. Mm -hmm. Now, you had David who conquered the Philistines. They're kind of a regional power uh, known to other empires, but not an empire in and of themselves. Right. You see him triumph tribally over certain enemies, shore up the promised land. But by the time of Solomon, you see Israel competing on the international exactly. scene. One of the reasons that the temple is described in such detail is because of the prestige that the temple had across the nations of the world. Mm-hmm. Now, another reason, if you've read Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus is because God loves that amount of detail. Right. And it speaks to a lot of things about his character. But another reason is because now Israel is a geopolitical power. So one of the things that really makes this story come alive is the information that lets you know what that geopolitical reality was like for Israel, what else is going on. You're going to see big international players right. throughout First and Second Kings, whether it's through them attacking Israel or Israel making an alliance with them. I mean, this is not just stuff from the Bible. This is real sources about what's going on in history in the ancient world. Exactly. Uh, and that's the key to this is as you read it, and it does sound a little redundant because you see some spiritual themes, but you can't really understand these kings. And this is not an apologetic for the kings, but they're living and just like you and me, 
is they're balancing the cares of life, in their case, geopolitical realities, uh, recessions, poverty, uh, conquests. I mean, they've got the ups and downs of daily life and their faith integrating into it. And that's exactly the way our lives are. And so to read it merely as good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, would be like reducing our lives to faithful, not so faithful, etc. And you would say, look, you know, faith exists in the real world. And the book of Kings is, is that way. And I like, you know, I've, I've pitched it many times. And the reason I pitched this book, the ESV Atlas of the Bible, is because anyone can read this. And you will get a little bit of the geopolitical realities without reading great detail. Mm-hmm. But it does a good job of fleshing out what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the, the geography is really important in First and Second Kings because you have a kingdom that splits. Right. And one of the big themes in, in First and Second Kings that's a little hard to wrap your mind around is why it's such a big deal that there are these other sanctuaries, these other temples, these right. imitation temples that are built. And uh, when you look at a map, you realize one of the practical reasons they made these temples very is because political move. they were politically expedient built them on the border. Mm -hmm. They were commercially expedient because of trade routes, because of where people live. They wanted to shift the centers of power around. And you know what? It just turns out Jerusalem isn't placed exactly where they wanted it placed. So they (laughs) export parts of Jerusalem out. So it just helps make a lot of sense as to why things are happening the way they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing that I think is really helpful in 1st and 2nd Kings is finding uh, a commentary or a teacher who's able to point out, again, what we talked about in First and Second Samuel, those typological hints that are telling you things about the characters, about the movements of the story uh, that flesh, in, flesh out some of the details. Right. So I would suggest First and Second Kings by Peter Lightheart in the Brazos Theological Commentary series. Very good work. That series can be hit or miss. It's a great series, and there are some volumes in there you're like, how did this happen? Depends on the author. How did this happen? Yeah. But he did did the 1st and 2nd Kings and the 1st and 2nd Chronicles volumes. 1st and 2nd Kings, one of the best books I've ever read. It will change the way you read the Bible. Mm -hmm. So that's my endorsement for uh, Lightheart and for 1st and 2nd Kings. But one of the things he does well is help you get into the mesh of the text. Right. So what is this text trying to tell us? What are we supposed to be learning from this character? What are we supposed to be learning from these stories? And another thing is, what does this have to do with the gospel? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what do several bad kings in the history of Israel and Judah have to do with the gospel? Mm-hmm. And it's easy to jump to, well, they were the predecessors of Christ, uh, but that's kind of unsatisfying. So, right. so they were his great, 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 great grandparents. Uh-huh. And this is the kingdom that he came to redeem. But the kingdom is very different mm-hmm. by the time Jesus gets there. One of the things that Lightheart points out is the thematic element of First and Second Kings and how it foreshadows the gospel. He says, this simply is the gospel. The good news that ends are not straight-line extrapolations from beginnings. Mm-hmm. We've definitely seen that from First and Second Samuel Absolutely. through the end of Second Kings. This is the gospel, that the end reverses the beginning. Again, 
coming out of Egypt, mm-hmm. going back to Egypt. Mm-hmm. As tears are washed away, the curse is removed, the dead are raised. The world is not condemned by its beginning to a certain ending, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It's an interesting statement to make in framing up the book of First and Second Kings because the book of First Kings begins with a death, and it's the death of David. Now, we've already seen the last words of David in First and Second Samuel, but uh-huh. we get the narration of his death, and it's a little surprising when, when this happens. So David is known as being a mighty man. In fact, one of the last things we see in the book of 2 mm-hmm. Samuel chapter 23 is the list, list. of uh-huh. David's mighty men. So many men's Bible studies have been done from that passage. You see it again in First Chronicles uh-huh. uh, and the stories of these mighty men. It's and, powerful. And David yeah. is the man that they all want to follow. Record scratch, when you start First Kings, David is a feeble old man. In fact, mm-hmm. he cannot even keep himself warm. Mm -hmm. He has to have a woman come and help to keep him warm as a nurse. Mm -hmm. And it's a very pathetic opening. And we can say that scripturally because this is what the scripture wants us to take away. Right. Is that even the great King David ends up running to the end of his life and he doesn't finish strong. He does spiritually. Right. But he doesn't finish physically strong. And so you open with a funeral at the beginning of 1 Kings. Mm -hmm. The greatest king in Israel is now dead. That spells doom for Israel. Right. right? And that's where I think Lightheart's quote is so interesting about how the story unfolds in 1 and 2 Kings is the book of 2 Kings is not going to end well either. Right. We're going to end in exile. And part of the gospel story, not just the death and resurrection of Christ, but but what that story embodies about the way that God does things is these reversals, mm-hmm. these resurrections from the dead. Israel will rise from the dead symbolically from the exile. That's right. They will also rise from the dead from the death of David. And mm-hmm. that's the first movement of the story of First and Second Kings is the death of the great king and the resurrection of the people of Israel in the building of the temple. Right. And sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around why the building of the temple is so significant. Part of it is because we know how the story ends. It gets Mm -hmm. destroyed. Jesus is the new temple. We have a little bit of a sense of just kind of skipping past this because we know the end of the story. But why is the building of the temple so significant? You know, I'll give you one perspective on that is you have to go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis and the Garden of Eden, and God makes his dwelling with Adam and Eve in the garden. And God's presence is with them. When they're cast out of the Garden of Eden, the fall of humanity, they're cast out of God's presence. And then you begin to see the movement through Noah and God's redemptive plan with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and then on down uh, through Moses, bringing them back to the promised land. And now, finally, God has chosen a place. He's chosen a person. Remember, he said to David, you won't build my house. Your son will build my house. Solomon builds it, and he chose the place, the Holy of Holies, where he came to reside again with his people. So there, I think there are a lot of reasons the temple is important. It's obviously the center of the cultic aspects of the Jewish religion, the, the animal sacrifice, etc. But there's a piece to me that says this is God saying, I've come to rejoin 
my people. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I think you're exactly right. I, I, that that theme, I think, is is one of the reasons why not only the temple is so important, but one of the reasons why Jesus saying that you can tear down the temple and raise right. it up in three days is important. It is the ultimate fulfillment. And that is the third time God makes his home amongst us, is the incarnation right. of Christ. Right. So I think it's important in the time. I think it's important afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you go today, if you go see the Temple Mount, you, you, the temple isn't there. Right. But you're just astounded by how amazing the temple must have been right. when it was built here. And then especially when Herod rebuilt the temple... Um, in the first century. Right. So the high point of Israel is the temple, not because the temple is amazing. Mm-hmm. The high point of Israel is that God is finally dwelling with his people. Mm-hmm. So in the first few chapters of First Kings, you see Solomon come to power. You see him consolidate his power in the first right. few chapters. That's one of those geopolitical realities that you're like, this is like reading medieval British history or, so, or right. like the history of the Habsburgs or something. Right. Solomon eliminates his enemies right. and he consolidates his power. Marries the daughter of Pharaoh, makes some, you know, I mean, he begins to do, you would recognize this from the Middle Ages. It's political. Right. I mean, and he is promised wisdom. He's very wise. You get that great story of... The mm-hmm. one baby and the moms who are arguing and Solomon, you know, decides to split the baby. <laughs> and then he gets to work on the main job that he's been given, which is to build the temple. And you get a lot of description about the temple. Chapter 6 and 7 gives you mm-hmm. excruciating detail about the temple. And again, that those things are revelatory about the character of God. They're not just lists for the sake of lists. Right. Um, and then you get the dedication of the temple. Mm-hmm. And this is just a magnificent scene. Yeah. All the people of Israel are gathered. It reminds you of the days of Moses when they were making covenants with God and they were promising to obey. Now the Spirit of God it descends on the temple. It fills the temple with smoke. And Solomon prays this amazing prayer starting in chapter 8. He thanks the Lord he uh, praises him before the people. He dedicates. He confesses sin. This is just an, a magnificent scene mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. It's powerful. You know, one of the uh, verse in there is uh, chapter 8, verse 27, in the middle of Solomon's prayer, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? You know, and, and uh, it's, it's just that, that joy of our God is coming to be with us. Mm-hmm. We are his people and he is our God and he is here with us. And you're right. It's just an amazing uh, scene. I mean, you're, you could make, you'd have to make a Hollywood blockbuster to really get the visual of this. Mm-hmm. But, but that's the key. And with all that detail, if you can use your imagination a little bit, you can just imagine the scene. One of the things I like about devotional reading is to sort of put yourself in the story. And uh, we all do that to some extent. We usually have a, an identify with the hero, whoever mm-hmm. that may be. But there are times when you're reading through this and you think, boy, this is kind of boring. Well, you know, sometimes I say to myself, well, imagine you're an onlooker mm-hmm. and you're there and you're describing this event. And it, it makes it come alive because it's hard to grasp how powerful that is. Yeah, I love the all the fanfare and the mm-hmm. celebration. And then at the end, Solomon gives this benediction. This is in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse starting in verse 54. 
Solomon finished offering this prayer and plea to the Lord, and he arose from before the altar where he had knelt with his hands outstretched to heaven, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise by which he spoke, uh, which he spoke by his servant Moses. Mm-hmm. This is a little preview of heaven. This is exactly right. what this is. When you see the description of the new heavens and the new earth in Ezekiel, and then again in the book of Revelation, right. you see this same kind of language. God has finally given his people rest. Here you get a glimpse of temporal rest. The mm-hmm. people of Israel have triumphed. They have rest in the land. They are prosperous. They have a king. And in the end of the Bible, you get eternal and spiritual rest. It's funny you say that because I think of Revelation chapter 4, which opens in the first vision, is in Revelation 4 of the throne room. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot of connection to this. And although you're right, this is temporal rest. There you see the consummation of God's glory and eternal rest. Mm -hmm. And that's a theme that we don't think about very much in the Bible is is rest. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you hear this when people talk about shalom. So shalom right. is the peace of God, and it's a holistic peace. It's not just military peace. It's not just internal peace. It is the fullness and the wholeness of what God's designed for his people. But rest is also a big theme. You see this in Hebrews especially. The author of Hebrews yes. really picks up on this that one of the things that God is doing through Christ is giving his people everlasting rest. Which they have been rehearsing for 1,400 years before Christ in the Sabbath. Right, the Sabbath, the Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee, and Christ's resurrection has ushered in the beginnings of an Mm -hmm. eternal year of Jubilee, an eternal Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And we think about that in the new heavens and the new earth, that We will be working, we will be doing things, we won't just be sitting on clouds, you know, and we won't just be attending an eternal worship service. Our whole lives will be worship. But we will also be at rest. Mm -hmm. And that is an interesting fusion through Scripture of working and serving God and also resting in God. So how does that work? Well, it doesn't work perfectly here. It works perfectly in the New Jerusalem where we will go since we've trusted in Christ. But we all get a little glimpse of that. I know everybody listening to this has had a moment when you're doing something you want, like you're reading a novel you really like, or you're studying something, or you maybe you're working in woodwork, or, or whatever it may be, and you're doing what you want, and you're working, but the time, you look up and so much time has passed, and it seems like no time passed because you were completely restful and uh, in your work. Everybody gets a little glimpse of that, I think. And that's how I view heaven, mm-hmm. is completely engrossed in what we're doing. Yeah, this scene is a great preview of that. Mm-hmm. And it's the end of the prologue of this second section mm-hmm. of First and Second Kings. In fact, this goes all the way through into chapter 11. Right. And you see the temple, you see Solomon's reign, unified kingdom, things are going well. And as we've been trained to expect... Things take a little bit of a dramatic turn. You can see from even the title here in the ESV in chapter 11, the foreboding Solomon turns from the Lord. (laughs) So again, on either side of David, you have kings who are half good, half not so good. Exactly. 
neither king really finishes well. Saul does not finish well, and and Solomon does not finish well. And they are bookending the king who does really finish spiritually mm-hmm. well, which is David. So Solomon turns from the Lord. He does exactly what the book of Deuteronomy says not to do. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the second section of this, everything after chapter 11, beginning in chapter 12, is a playing out of the promises that Deuteronomy makes for the people of God. And mm-hmm. we talked about this when we talked about the book of Deuteronomy, but there's a unit of Scripture. Some people call it the Deuteronomistic history. Mm-hmm. There's a whole big thing about this, whether or not there was one Deuteronomist and compiler. and well, Let's just take this at a thematic level. Right. The book of Deuteronomy is the theological cornerstone of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. It describes what the nation of Israel should be like. Right. It describes what the people of God should be like. It describes God's character and what he is like. It is to the Old Testament as Romans maybe is to the New Testament. Um, It describes what the perfect kingdom would look like if people could ever achieve it. Mm -hmm. And the book of Deuteronomy actually, while not named in the books of 1 and 2 Kings, plays a huge role. Uh Uh, It plays a role in a bad sense. Uh, they lose the book of Deuteronomy for about 150 years, which we come to find out. Josiah later finds the book we think is Deuteronomy. It makes uh-huh. sense that it would be the law of Deuteronomy. Uh, the other kings violate pretty systematically everything Every- that Deuteronomy <laughs> says not to do. Yeah. It takes a while to violate all 613 commandments. Yeah, but they, the they do but their they best. To do it. Uh, but in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20... Moses prophesies about a king in Israel. He says, you guys are going to want a king. And if there was anybody who was well acquainted with Israelite complaining, it was Moses. So he knows they're going to want a king like the other nations. But let me tell you the downsides of having a king. They're going to take all your horses. They're going to take all your wives. And they're going to take all your gold. That's what kings do. Wait, I'm having a flashback to modern times. Yeah. (laughs) So he says, you know, you really shouldn't want a king because of these reasons, but you're going to. So let me give you some advice when you have a king. The king should abide by the law. The king, in fact, Deuteronomy describes that every king of Israel Mm -hmm. should make a handwritten copy of the book of Deuteronomy for himself and keep it with him all the time. As we've seen, they did not do that 150 years. They don't even know where Deuteronomy is. But that's the goal. Mm -hmm. And what you see in the end of the reign of Solomon is the cracks in the foundation of the Deuteronomic vision of Israel. Mm-hmm. So like I said, Solomon violates the three big cardinal rules about kings. He's got too many horses, he's got too many wives, you he's got, got too, too much gold. gold. Okay, that that's is right. that is a recipe for disaster. And beginning in chapter 11, that's pretty much what happens. That's right. Solomon goes off the rails, he's attracted by foreign women, he is rich beyond anybody's wildest dreams, and he uh, takes all the horses. Right. So We see the Lord raise up adversaries. It says in verse 9 of chapter 11, because the heart of Solomon had turned away from the Lord, Mm -hmm. even though the Lord had appeared to him twice, he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. So God begins to judge the people of Israel. And after Solomon's reign in chapter 12, we get the next section of the book of of 1 and 2 Kings. And the first thing that we see happen is, is a dispute over the kingdom. And uh, we get some pretty bad rulers in here, and they are going to end up splitting the kingdom of Israel in two. Mm -hmm. You have uh, 
Jerusalem, if you just look at the geography of it, you have a couple of tribes in that part of the land of Israel, uh, the tribe of uh, Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And the other 10 of the 12 tribes are all north of there, all the way up to like the Sea of Galilee and, you know, the northern part. And so Solomon, as his spiritual commitment declines, uh, so also his wisdom seems to decline. He puts heavy taxes. Imagine this. If you were taxed in Oklahoma, just to heavily, heavily taxed, and all the money was taken to some other state and building great football stadiums and other things. Well, that's what Solomon did. He taxed those northern tribes, but he built everything in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so by the time he dies, he's really alienated politically and economically, those 10 tribes. Well, his son, Rehoboam, after his death, meets with these tribes. And the advisors of Solomon say, you know, your father really, if you will just cut these people's taxes and uh, they will love you forever and they will follow you and serve you like your father. Well, he goes to his own advisors who are his age and they say, no way, you're a better man than your father. Just go tell them that your father taxed him heavily. You'll tax him a lot more heavily. You're more of a man than your father ever was. And so he does. And what happens? Well, the 10 tribes say, we have no more with you. Even though David was our king, even though Solomon was our king, every man for himself. And so Rehoboam is left with Jerusalem and the area around that. And the 10 tribes in the north find another person named Jeroboam, who's, who's not a descendant of Solomon, and they make him uh, their king. And so the nation of Israel splits in two, 10 tribes in the north and two in the south. It's a sad story. It's a realistic story. Yes. It makes sense the way you explained it. It makes sense why these kings did what they did, but they also were disobeying God's commands. Right. So one of the things you see about Rehoboam and Jeroboam, it, 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 could you have found two kings that have more similar names? <laughs> but Rehoboam and Jeroboam are both executing pretty well-orchestrated power grabs. Right. Uh, one of the things you see about Rehoboam is, and th- this is just a classic, if there's a good leadership lesson in First Kings, mm-hmm. it's in chapter 12. Rehoboam, when he becomes king, took counsel with the old men, the ones that advised his dad, who did pretty well. Mm-hmm. But he decides he doesn't need their advice. Right. So he surrounds him with a bunch of young people who the text tells us are foolish. Fraternity brothers. Yeah, his, his old fraternity brothers. <laughs> he brings them in as his advisors and shuns the advice of the older men. And in fact, he says, he says, if my father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. Right. So we got some insecurity here. Mm-hmm. We have some daddy issues, which we're going to see throughout <laughs> all of First and Second Kings. Right. And he decides that he is going to reinvent the spiritual and the political climate of Israel, like right. you said. He doesn't like the way that uh, his father did things. He doesn't have the political... Uh, sense that his father did, mm-hmm. and he loses the northern kingdom. Right now, one thing that's interesting is when Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern kingdom, he starts breaking rules like oh, you wouldn't believe. Builds absolutely. a new temple. He becomes legendary, and he becomes the standard for disobedience throughout the rest of the book. Exactly, of kings. exactly. And one of the things you realize is, okay, he is not a blood descendant of Solomon. He's right. not a blood descendant of David. 
the line of Christ cannot come through Jeroboam. They are doomed from the Mm -hmm. get-go because he promised that a son of David will sit on the throne forever. And he gets very dicey at points in 1 and 2 Kings trying to figure out, is there a son of David around? And there always is, but from the get-go, you realize this is an imitation kingdom. It is not a good kingdom. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the things you're going to see is in the north, you do not have good kings. Right. They broke off. They usurped. They are not good kings. Uh, but you get an interesting pattern that arises, and this is helpful in the way that you read First and Second Kings. So let's go back to organization of the literature. Mm-hmm. So like we said, you've got this intro section that's really kind of a middle section from the time right. of David all the way through the dedication of the temple to the time that things turn for Solomon is a middle section of 1 Samuel through 2 Kings. Uh-huh. If you look at 1 and 2 Kings, there's a break that takes place in chapter 12. After Solomon, you get Rehoboam. Especially in chapter 13, you're going to see a new pattern emerge. Um, from chapter 12 through chapter 17 of 1 Kings, you have seven kings. Starting with Jeroboam in the north, ending with Ahab in the north, who is Israel's worst king. Right. In fact, one of the things that you realize is First and Second Kings are a lot about the northern kingdom, not as much about the southern kingdom. Good point. So you're going to get seven kings in the northern kingdom from chapters 12 through 17. Then in chapter 17, something very interesting happens you have the prophets begin to arise in mm-hmm. Israel. Now, you actually see this earlier. And if you listen to our first and second Samuel episode, one of the things that we talked about there is the word of the Lord and the word of the king are juxtaposed against each other through the narrative of first and second kings. Mm-hmm. And the word of the Lord triumphs, even though physically, in terms of power, in right. terms of prestige, The prophets are never on the winning end. So, for example, the first time we see this in chapters 12 and 13, a good example is in chapter 13. The the kingdom is going uh, poorly at this point. And the word of the Lord comes. Behold, a man of God, no name, no prestige, no power, came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel, and he confronts Jeroboam. This is going to be the role of the Word of God for the rest of the story. You're going to have these nameless prophets. I mean, we're we're going to have Elijah. He's prestigious to us. But in terms of the kingdom, he is a nobody. Right. He has no power. And Uh, they are going to confront the kings of Israel and of Judah. Now, uh, what you see in 1 Kings chapter 17 is you see the rise of Elijah. And Elijah comes out of nowhere. I mean, he just, all of a sudden, Elijah the Tishbite uh, in Gilead says to Ahab, it's not going to rain except for when I say it's going to rain. Right. And you're just like, whoa, this amazing <laughs> introduction of a character who's going to shape the rest of the history of Israel just pops onto the scene and confronts Ahab, who is the worst of Israel's kings. Yeah. In fact, Walter Brueggemann, uh, in his writing on the prophets, uh, one of the my favorite books of his is called Truth Speaks to Power. And that's what you just talked about, is you have secular worldly power in these kings. Jeroboam sets up his own temples, and 
uh, you know, becomes a, a political player, and there's no God in this. God is merely a political tool for him. Those mm-hmm. temples are for completely political reasons. And then on down, and it degrades to you get to Ahab, who, as you said, is the worst, you know, around 100 years later. He's, he's the worst king. And all of a sudden, you see an unnamed prophet, and then other prophets. And now Elijah, who comes out of nowhere and has nothing to commend him. But you do see, and it, this is also, by the way, a type. Because this truth speaking to power in the Old Testament, you will see it again in, uh, well, obvious, most obviously, you're going to see the new Elijah figure in John mm-hmm. the Baptist. And Jesus is the ultimate truth mm-hmm. speaking to power. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to see a lot of political unrest because of these prophets. Uh And they are just disrupting and confronting and rebuking power. And that's a great definition for what prophecy is. It's not necessarily, you hear the phrase, it's not necessarily foretelling. It is forthtelling. It is speaking truth to power. That's what the prophets do. And they form this great little subgroup in First and Second Kings. And uh, every time I think about Elijah, I always think of this sermon by R.G. Lee called Payday Someday. You know this sermon. I do. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it is a sermon about a, a kind of an interesting, uh, lesser-known story about Elijah. It's Elijah and the vineyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, which is the most famous story about mm-hmm. Elijah. But one of the reasons that Ahab is such a bad king is because he married so poorly. He marries Jezebel. And one of the reasons you don't hear very many young girls named Jezebel is because she is one of the worst characters in the Bible. In fact, she is so bad that she becomes a catchphrase for an evil woman in the Bible. Yeah, she is a Jezebel, comes into the English language as a phrase for this is an evil person. Yeah, you see later on, even in Revelation, you see Jesus saying, this person is a Jezebel. That's right. And you should cast them out, which is what Israel should have done, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. So in in this sermon by R.G. Lee, it's called Payday Someday. He just gives this amazing introduction to these characters. I'm just going to read a few sentences, but it's worth looking up and reading. He starts the sermon. He says, I introduce to you Ahab, the vile human toad who squatted upon the throne of his nation, the worst of Israel's kings. King Ahab had command of a nation's wealth and a nation's army, but he had no command of his lusts and appetites. Wow. He wore rich robes, but he had a sinning and wicked and troubled heart beneath them. And he goes on and on and on. And uh, he talks about Jezebel. And then he says, Now I introduce to you Elijah, the Tishbite, prophet of God at a time when by tens of thousands people had forsaken God's covenants, thrown down God's altars, slain God's prophets with the sword. The prophet knowing much of the glorious past, and now the apostate nation must have been filled with horror when he learned of the rank heathenism, fierce cruelties, and reeking licentiousness of Ahab's idolatrous capital. Holy anger burned within him like an unquenchable Vesuvius. He wore the roughest kind of clothes, but he had underneath these clothes a righteous and courageous heart. He ate bird's food and widow's fare, but he was a great physical and spiritual athlete. He was God's tall cedar that wrestled with the paganistic cyclones of his day without bending or breaking. He was God's granite wall that stood up and out against the rising tides of the apostasy of his day. Though much alone, he was sometimes attended by the invisible hosts of God. He grieved only when God's cause seemed tottering. 
He passed from earth without dying into celestial glory. Even where courage is admired and manhood honored and service appreciated, he is honored as one of earth's great heroes and one of heaven's greatest saints. Wow. That will preach. Yes. But Elijah is this totally countercultural man of God. Mm-hmm. And from chapter 12, of, or from chapter 17, I mean, of uh-huh. 1 Kings, all the way through 2 Kings 13, you're going to see Elijah and then Elijah's successor, Elisha, again, very convenient naming here. Mm-hmm. They are going to speak truth to power. And one of the things I love, we could go down this rabbit hole, but we don't have time, is this little group, this insurgent group that appears in First and Second Kings. And we know next to nothing about them. But they are very interesting in this story. And they're called the Sons of the Prophets. Mm-hmm. You see them several different times, especially towards the end of the narrative about Elisha. Elisha apparently is the head of the sons of the prophets. So when he goes from town to town, they have like little chapters. Mm -hmm. This is like the Rotary Club of these little, you see Jericho, Uh you see different towns. And when he goes there, the sons of the prophets come out. The local chapter comes out and greets him and, you know, he speaks to them. They probably have a dinner and everything. (laughs) And uh, you get this great story in 2 Kings chapter 6 about this little camp of the sons of the prophets and they have an axe head that falls Mm -hmm. into them and God brings it back up and... Anyway, it, it's thought that maybe Jonah was part of this group of the sons of the prophets. Mm. It's mm-hmm. one of the things that you notice about Jonah is that he has pretty significant training in the word of the Lord. Yeah, the timing's about right. And this is the group that was preserving the word of the Lord at the time right. because everybody else was evil. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of people didn't care about the word of the Lord. So it, God tells Elijah when he calls him that there are 7,000 people left in Israel who have not bowed to Baal, and who have not kissed him. That's not very many people no, in Israel. No, it's not. And it goes back to the theme we began this with, the, the resurrection of the people of God, of the word of God. The way that God does that is through his prophets. And this is one of the things that's most applicable today, I think, is that in a world that is in some ways very similar to the world of Ahab and Jezebel, mm-hmm. that we live in, we tend to think that staging a coup against Ahab maybe right. would be the answer. Or founding Elijah did not found a political party. Yeah, he trusted in the power of the word of God. Now, did he do some political things? Yeah. Yes, he did. Did he confront Ahab over some of his policy items? He did. But at the end of the day, Elijah operated based on the power of the word of God. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the big things we should take away from First and Second Kings is, this is a political reality, not that different than our political reality. Right. And these are prophets, not that different than our prophets, mm-hmm. which we would consider prophets, preachers, pastors, people that are just reading their Bibles and leading their families right. and friends. These prophets trusted in the word of God, not in the word of the king. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. As you see, we talked about typology. We talked about, uh, I, I like to talk of it as rehearsing. It's though... This story, even though it really happened and it was real at the time, was a dress rehearsal, I think, for the church's role in a world that appears a lot like that northern kingdom of Israel. And I think that there is a lot to be said for understanding our role as a prophetic role. You even think of the Great Commission, you know, go into all the world 
and make disciples, sons of the prophets, if you will, you know, teaching them to obey and baptizing them in my name. I mean, there's a, and in fact, when Jesus came, people's first thought is he's an unbelievable prophet because he came in that tradition. And I do think it's, it's useful to see the church and to see ourselves in that tradition. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the similarities you see between Elijah and the second Elijah, John the Baptist. They mm-hmm. both confront kings. John the Baptist is killed, and Elijah doesn't die. He gets taken up in the chariots of fire. But mm-hmm. they both put their lives on the line to speak truth to power, to speak to the kings and say, in John the Baptist's case, you should not take your brother's wife. Mm-hmm. And in Elijah's case, you should not be worshiping Baal. You should not be married to that woman. She should not be killing the prophets of God. Right. And uh, this is the centerpiece of First and Second Kings, is this portion mm-hmm. from First Kings 17 when Elijah shows up to Second Kings 13 at the end of the ministry of Elisha. And after that, you get, I know this is going to be stunning, seven more kings. So <laughs> from 12 to 17 in First Kings, you get seven kings, starting uh-huh. with Jeroboam, ending with Ahab. And after this middle section of prophets, you uh-huh. get... From 2 Kings chapter 13 through the end of the book, seven more kings, get this, beginning with Jeroboam the second. So we're mm-hmm. repeating things here. Yeah. And we go all the way through the end with Hosea, who is Israel's last king. Mm, right. And uh, this is another section of decline. This is when Israel is struggling to even be a nation anymore. And it turns out we're going to see them exported. Right. Because of conquering enemies. And then we turn our attention to the southern kingdom. Like mm-hmm. we said, the southern kingdom doesn't get as much attention in First and Second Kings as you would think, since that's About the line seven of, or eight chapters at the end of Second Kings, once the northern kingdom named Israel, the ten tribes, the Assyrians deport them and, and send them into exile, from which they actually don't return. Now, the last eight chapters kind of focuses into that southern kingdom uh, around Jerusalem. So after you have the death of Elisha, you get an in the meantime. Yeah. You might be wondering what's happening in Judah. Uh Well, in the second year of Joash, 14 starts and gives you a little update on what's going on in Judah. And like you said, these last chapters are catching you up on what's been going on in Judah. And in Judah, as opposed to Israel, you are going to get a few good kings. Mm-hmm. In fact, you're going to get two notable good kings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for example, in 722 BC, so the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians, and that sort of ends that story, if you will. Those seven bad kings, Assyrians destroy them. Now we move to chapter 18 of Second Kings, and the focus is in the south. Well, you know, the Assyrians didn't leave. They thought, as long as we're here... Let's go ahead and conquer that southern kingdom, too. And there's a king named Hezekiah. And this is one of the famous stories in the Bible, is the Assyrians start blowing through and conquering town after town in the southern kingdom as well. And they get to the gates of Jerusalem. The uh, commander of Sennacherib happens to be the Assyrian king. The commander of his army gets there and starts talking to them and saying, Hezekiah, Uh, your God didn't save those 10 tribes in the north, and he isn't going to save you. And inside there, by the way, is Isaiah the prophet. Mm -hmm. And he and Hezekiah takes counsel with him. And I'll just shorten it and simply say Hezekiah decides 
There's no political solution. We're, we're destroyed. I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of the Lord. And uh, we're going to trust in the Lord. We're not going to give up. We're going to trust God. And Isaiah gives them the word of the Lord and said, the Lord says, none of them will set foot in this city. And you may remember the story. I'm, I'm leaving out a lot of the great details. So definitely read 2 Kings 18 and following. But basically, they wake up the next morning and over 100,000 soldiers are dead. And Sennacherib conveniently turns around and goes home. Yeah, this is one of the best stories in the Old Testament. And we should have just done a whole podcast on this. I don't know mm-hmm. who's planning these episodes, but <laughs> we, uh, we should have devoted more time here because... This is just such a great story. Sennacherib, you can find out a lot about Sennacherib outside of the Bible. Oh, I mean, yeah, this absolutely. is a real-life guy. He gives a reference of, of going to Jerusalem. He says he, he, uh, he what's the quote? He, he bottles up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. Bird in a cage, yeah, from the Sennacherib prism. In fact, this uh, that's a, a side note. First and Second Kings is probably, archaeologically, the best attested period of history in Israel. Mm-hmm. There's more archaeology all over the world to support that what this is saying. And so yeah. Sennacherib, they, you, know, you excavate his palace mm-hmm. in Nineveh. And yeah. so, yeah, yeah it's of, amazing. In the British Museum, uh-huh. you can go into Sennacherib's throne room. Right. And then later kings, Ashurbanipal, and uh-huh. you can see these these carved stone walls of their exploits and the Israelites coming and paying tribute and them torturing Israelites. I mean, this is real history. And uh, you can see the the testimonies of these other kings and about their relationships with Israel. I I think I've talked about this before, maybe not on the podcast, but I, I think the Rabshakeh is one of the most fascinating characters in the Bible. He's the spokesperson for Sennacherib, who comes to yell across the walls into Jerusalem. And the Jews just had all kinds of fun with this story because they conjectured a lot of interesting things about this character. So biblically speaking, we don't know very much about him. It's his title. Yeah, Rabshakeh is a is a cupbearer, is a spokesperson. It's a political position, very prestigious position. And what Lightheart does in the commentary, First and Second Kings, is he interprets the Rabshakeh's message as a study in comparative religions. The Rabshakeh is a apologist against uh-huh. the people of very Israel. Very true. And if you read it from that light, you see the arguments he makes is very interesting. But I'll just include this: the so some of the commentary from the Jews on the story of of the Rabshakeh and Hezekiah, they really wanted to thicken the plot. I mean, this is worthy of of Netflix. <laughs> they conjectured that the Rabshakeh is a wayward son of Isaiah. So Isaiah has a son, which we know from Isaiah that did have children. And he is wayward. He goes off and he joins the Assyrian army. He is very valuable to them because he knows Hebrew. And we see the Rabshakeh speaking. He speaks in 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 Hebrew, Hebrew. which is... Very and, important uh, to the story. Anyway, yeah. of course, he, like most of these characters, doesn't like his dad. So he comes <laughs> back and he leads the charge against Israel. And it's him and his dad up on the wall counseling. I mean, they, they this really needs to be a movie. They really brought out the intrigue in this story. <laughs> There's no evidence that that's actually the case, but it sure does make for a great uh-huh. intriguing story. But God saves the people of Israel from the Assyrians. And that's where you see a big difference between Israel and Judah. 
So we say people of Israel, we're talking all the people here, but the kingdom of Judah, which is full of Israelites, and the kingdom of Israel suffer very different fates. The kingdom of Israel is exiled immediately. They never come back. That line is gone. But the people of Judah have a little bit different Mm -hmm. end. Hezekiah is a good king. He reforms. He saves the people because of his faith. He listens to the prophet. And you're going to get about 140 years Right. Continuing through of Israel or of Judah's history, right? And you're going to get another good king later on. You get uh, Josiah, who's a great king. He does pretty good reforms. He finds the law, uh, which we think is Deuteronomy. He starts to enact things, but even Josiah's reforms can't stand up against the impending doom of Judah. Right. So what happens at the end of the book? Yeah, it's uh, it's another dramatic. Uh, event, but Josiah, about a, about a hundred years after Hezekiah, finds the law, probably the book of Deuteronomy, reads it and begins to weep and tear his clothes and say, "Lord, we have sinned. We have not done these things." And he tries to turn uh, the people back, and he does for a little while. He's killed in battle against the uh, Egyptian pharaoh Necho is his name. But then shortly after him, you again see kings that instead of placing their trust in God, place their trust in their political alliances and their political skills. And the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, makes a very bad political miscalculation. And the Babylonians show up and they besiege Jerusalem. They conquer Jerusalem. They tear down the walls. They literally tear down every stone in the temple. They catch Zedekiah. And this is very, has a lot of pathos. It has a lot of emotion to it. They bring his children before him and they kill them. And then they gouge out his eyes. So that's the last thing he ever saw. And so you really see this grisly, horrid ending at the end of 2 Kings that started, remember where we started, David and Solomon, the glory Mm -hmm. times. And now here we are from 970 BC when Solomon takes over in 1 Kings to 586 BC. So not quite 400 years. And here is the grisly end of Judah. Yeah, it's a, it's a brutal story. You're going to, you're going to get some really intense scenes at the end of the story. It's interesting to to go back to how we read these texts. So we've talked about the Israelites come out of Egypt, they go back to Egypt. They you're saying they go back to Babylon. Most of them go to Babylon. Right. Some of them get taken away to Egypt. They're fleeing, but the the, the sense of it is they're going to a foreign land. They go from captivity in Egypt to captivity in Babylon. Some of them do go back to Egypt, but basically captivity to captivity. Exile, if you will, to exile from their homeland. And one of the clues that you have, this isn't just something that we're making up or some, you know, something that we see that that you can't, is if you look in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 5, when the the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and his men hunt down the last king of Judah, who is Zedekiah, It says, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. You know where Jericho is? (laughs) On the way out of the promised land. So you think about Moses and his people are camped on the plains of Jericho in the beginning. And and, 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 uh, Joshua leads them. 
and they conquer Jericho in on their way into the promised land. Well, the last king of Judah is conquered on his way out of the promised Stops land. Stops in Jericho to get gas and yes. gets caught. Yeah. And uh, they slaughter his sons. They take him off to Babylon. And in the same way that First and Second Samuel ends with a little bit of foreboding. So you get mm-hmm. a little sense of doom at the end of First and Second Samuel. First and Second Kings ends in a little bit different way. You get doom. You get destruction. If you want a contemporaneous book, read the book of Jeremiah. He lives right. through the conquering. Right. And uh, then you get a little glimmer of a hope at the end of Second Kings. So at the end of chapter 25 in Second Kings, verse 27, And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, what a great name, Yeah. King of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived." And by the way, there's archaeology around this. There are pictures of Jehoiakim. But you talked uh, several times in the past couple podcasts about resurrection. This is a resurrection. It is. He's a minor king who's been captured before the destruction of Judah and put in prison. And now through grace, just through good favor of this Babylonian king, he brings him out and says, you know, you're going to eat at my table and you're going to be a respected Mm-hmm. king of one of our provinces. It is a resurrection story. It is a resurrection story. It's a story of hope. And and one of the things, too, is so when you get down with Second Kings, you typically go into First Chronicles. Mm-hmm. But I would say, for something different, yeah. read, instead of First and Second Chronicles, which is a retelling of right. the story of David and the fall of Israel, through the eyes of the priestly class. Uh-huh. Uh, so you have prophets, priests, and kings. You get mm-hmm. a lot of prophets and a lot of kings in First and Second Kings. You get a lot of priestly vision and yes. language. They don't like David as much in First and Second Chronicles. We'll talk about that when we get there. But the story picks up in the book of Nehemiah, exactly. in Ezra and Nehemiah. Right. So Ezra is kind of the first wave. But I like to think of the, the curtain closes... At Jehoiachin, he is at the table of the king. He is resurrected. The people of Judah, the line of David is still being passed on. And then all of a sudden, you get this new character, Nehemiah, who is a cupbearer to the king. And that is going to be a very significant detail for the way that the story of the people of Judah comes back full circle into the promised land. So these stories, these types, these movements, they begin, they get better, they get worse, there's resurrection, there's destruction, but God is still directing the course of history. He is faithful to his promises. He punishes his people for disobedience, but he holds true to his side of the bargain, which is that the son of David will be on the throne forever. And uh, he preserves the line of Christ, he preserves the people, he preserves the promised land. And at the end of Second Kings, you get that little glimmer of hope as to how he's going to do it. This is the way one of the Star Wars movies ends. You know, yeah. is you get a little glimmer of hope that Luke Skywalker is still alive 
out here on one of these planets. Ben Kenobi is at the king's ben table. Ben Kenobi, that's right. But in all seriousness, when you read this, if you just read the events, here's one thing to look one layer deeper. You do see uh, geopolitical events and good kings and things happening and betrayal and characters and prophets and a priest. And you see all these things happening. But if you, if you just step back, you realize, wait a minute, through all of these centuries of events that I've just been reading, God is moving the story forward. When you're in the middle of it, you think, oh, it's up. Oh, no, now we're down. Oh, how are we going to get out of this? Oh, my goodness, look what God did. But if you think about it, he's moving everything toward Jesus Christ. The destruction of the temple, the exile of the people, Elijah, all these characters are leading up to what's going to happen at the right time. And I just think it's neat to read history. We read history, secular history, and you're always struggling to figure out, is there any, is there a point to this? But you read this and you step back and you realize, wait a minute, for all the ups and downs, this is going somewhere. I personally, Cole, feel uh, encouraged when I read First and Second Kings. I know a lot of people stay away from the Old Testament, but my life goes up and down. Your life goes up and down. And every now and then we wonder, is there, is this going somewhere? When you read First and Second Kings, you realize their lives were going somewhere, even if they couldn't see it, and so are ours. I think it's a real faith builder. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.